Hi, it's Bo Dewar again. I uh, hope you enjoyed part one of the interview. Uh, you must have, because you're here for part two, which starts right now. The cost of youth soccer, the industry, has just gotten completely out of control. Why are kids on certain teams and how they found themselves there? And is it indeed the best situation for them to develop? There really seems to be a lack of inclusion. I'd love to see a club just be honest and right. say that. <laughs> right, right. Uh, you no. know all that BS? Forget that. We're not saying it because it doesn't matter. <laughs> We're just right. going to play to win. Okay. Okay. Um, so, so, yeah, we were talking about field sizes. And, yeah, and I was just telling you yeah. about that kid. Once he caught up, he was the best kid in the whole group. But it took him it, it took him years to kind of overcome the conditions under which we play. The field size and the and the grass, the grass length, or just the grass itself. Um, I would argue that our little kids should be learning the game on blacktop. And people, people will, will look at me and say, well, but that's not soccer. Parents will never go for that. That's dangerous. Well, we play basketball on blacktop. At least we did when I was a kid. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we used to play touch football on blacktop. Well, soccer, they might trip and hurt themselves. Well, not if they're playing on blacktop. They'll figure it out very quickly. In Spain, Argentina, Italy, et cetera, or France just won the World Cup with a great number of players who have done nothing, or as kids did nothing but play on concrete, they're all still alive. You play differently when you play under those conditions. The game also becomes less physical um, and and more skill-based, especially at those early ages, if you're playing on hard, fast surfaces. So when we play on on the kinds of surfaces and the field sizes that we play on in this country, we're going to reward the wrong things. Right. Now, the... The messy kid that, uh, that I mentioned, yeah, that was back when, it, well, I suppose it's fairly typical in our club, sort of the, the older you get, the, the better choice of field you have. So when you're practicing on, uh, these practices would have been an elementary school field where, yeah, the grass was probably pretty long. Um, and then I practiced on a park where I went out <laughs> for the first practice of the fall and I realized that they had not watered the field all summer and sure enough within about two weeks of you know five days of practice and one day of game game time on this field it's all torn up and then they came out and aerated it so uh we were playing basically on clumps of dirt <laughs> you know I, I suppose it's sort of like playing on gravel <laughs> well you know it, it, i don't know if you read that new york times piece before the world cup about the the french national team about mbappe and these other players who who grew up playing in the banlieues and it talks about uh, this one uh, this one uh, kind of elite team, kind of U14s, U15s, right before a big game, the coach takes them to go play on one of the dirt fields that they grew up playing on because he said it's going to sharpen, it's going to get them sharp and ready for this big game because on the dirt, that you're going to have bumps and, and divots. You're not going to be able to control, you're going to have to you know, work that much harder to control the ball. I mean, there's real value in playing in garbage situations. I mean, in our book, in our in our chapter called No Space, so we have a chapter, No Grass, talking about, you know, this, our obsession with playing on grass. But we've got another chapter, No Space, where we talk about the different spaces that people play soccer on around the world. Um, you know, one of the best, one of the most fascinating games of soccer I've seen was played on, like, on a terraced 
uh, plaza in front of the, 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 the Reina Sofia Art, Contemporary Art Museum in Madrid, Spain. So we've got, we've got this kind of stair-step plaza. And these kids are playing soccer on stair steps with tourists walking through the game and old folks sitting around, milling around the game. And the kids, they're not playing a soft, you know, wimpy game. They're blasting this ball full speed um, around, this, around this plaza, um, not hitting the tourists, not hitting the old folks, and on a, on a, on a, on a surface that is stair-stepped. Uh, this is, this is almost, though, how, what kind of skill do you have to play to play under those conditions, to, to survive in those conditions? Or in Italy, playing in this little kind of half moon plaza in front of an old uh, Baroque church. Um, they're playing on kind of this marble surface around a fountain, but they were playing a real soccer game. The skills that you have to develop to, to manage a ball under those kinds of conditions. I don't know how you, how you recreate that. But we could certainly at least get ourselves off the thick grass, get ourselves off the big fields. And for these little kids, I would say up through U12 for most kids, most of the time they should be playing on very small fields, very fast surfaces. And then we'll create, we'll be producing a whole, a whole, you know, a, a, a sea of highly skilled players that then you can start to teach Barcelona style to. And they will have all the technique and all the creativity and all the game sense that you could ever wish for, then you begin to, 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 to mold that talent into kind of a professional soccer player. Right now we're trying to mold professional soccer players out of, out of kids who've just kind of learned to boot the ball and, and always make the safe pass, always make the right pass, which is another thing you hear from even the very best coaches. Um, you know, watching games around the United States. They're just, they're joysticking their kids to pass, pass, pass. They, you, you always yeah. have a, you always have two or three passes in the final third. And of course, two or three passes in the final third are going to score those goals, um, uh, you know, at, at the, at the younger age groups. Um, but our kids just need to be left alone to, to figure out for themselves to try to nutmeg the keeper, so to speak. Yeah. I, I would say if I'm on an aerated or, gravelly or uh or bumpy field my my inclination would be to to blast the ball so it's not on the ground uh but on a fast flat surface and here's the the thing the funny thing where we run into uh sort of the conventional wisdom which is that uh there's definitely a backlash these days against artificial turf and as you mentioned i mean the the ideal surface would be to have short grass that's just very difficult to maintain if you're going to yeah. have, you know, t- you know, five hours of practice each day and then yeah. you know yeah. eight hours of games every weekend. But then artificial turf really is kind of the next best thing, yeah. Uh, in terms of controlling the ball, and it's just we we're worried about for injuries and so forth. But I think a lot of people get confused about what the best surface is for a U7 kid who's just learning how to play versus the best surface for, say, a Women's World Cup game. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, our concern with injuries, you know, a lot of those injuries aren't going to happen if we just leave the kids alone and let them play. You know, instead we're overcoaching, and then we go to these tournaments, and, and, and it's intense game after intense game after intense game after intense game. What we need, we need more play, but we need more low-key play. The kids just having fun. Kids get injured at tournaments. Kids don't get injured when they're just playing soccer. You know, I, maybe it's just anecdotal, but everything I've seen, the, the concussions that I've seen, 
The career-ending concussions I've seen have all happened in the third and fourth games of tournaments. They, mm-hmm. they haven't happened even in league play, but they certainly don't happen when kids are just fiddling around with the ball. You don't get kids concussed in those situations. So, you know, these overuse injuries, our concern with injuries, again, we are putting the cart before the horse. We're acting as if these kids are professionals before they even learn to just play the game. And if we just leave these kids alone to play the game, around age 12, age 13, that's when kids figure out what they really want to do anyways. Uh, they, but you'd have a, a, a whole this, this, a, a whole nation full of really talented, creative kids, and then you begin to select. You begin to select. Begin to select, and then you're selecting from a much, uh, a, a much, a much broader swath of talent. And even if you want to select right. y- yeah, at a younger age, I mean, I'm not, I'm not delusional. We're dealing with the system that we're dealing with. You can't just. If I were the czar of, of U.S. soccer, maybe I would just change everything overnight. But that's not, that's not going to happen. But you know, even if you're going to select younger, you've got to. Once you select, you've got to let them continue to just play, 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 play um, at younger at, the, at those younger ages. Yeah, we'll, we'll put you in charge of uh, something in the last couple of questions. Uh, maybe yeah. not U.S. soccer as a whole, because that that's that's difficult to do. But uh, yeah, and also what I hear from people from in a lot of different youth capacities is uh, yeah yeah we'd like for U.S. soccer to provide a framework, but we don't want them. We don't want someone in Chicago dictating what I'm doing in practice in Des Moines or in Los Angeles or in New Jersey. Yeah. Uh, and, um, yeah, it's, it's funny. There was one thing in, uh, about injuries and so forth. There was one thing in, in the book that made me cringe because I think I read it right after uh, I was trying to demonstrate something to a player in practice, um, and I was going up against a kid who has – he tends to be a little rough, and so I came out with a bruise on my shin. <laughs> yeah. Immediately thought, yeah. boy, this no shin guards thing. I'm not sure I'm down with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, the, the, uh, again, we're not just making this stuff up. Um, what I noticed years ago um, is that no one ever wears shin guards at practice in Spain, and no one ever wears shin guards at practice in Argentina. And if you if you play soccer, you know. When I go play soccer with the, with the adults, with the North American adults in the adult leagues in 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 my hometown or my in my home region, all the North American men are wearing shin guards. You go play soccer with the with the Africans or the Mexicans, um, nobody's wearing shin guards. Now, you know, you, you you have to scratch your head and say, okay, what's going on here? Okay, so Spain's won the World Cup, and, and of course, my co-author. Uh, grew up and uh, spent many years of his life in Italy. He's been, nobody wears shin guards over there. You only wear shin guards at the highest levels when you are competing intensely. So how do they get away with this? Well, people would never go for it because you'd hurt each you know you'd hurt each other. Well, as I write about in the book, we decided to try that this year with our U9s and U10s. Now with U9s and U10s, you still have got some crazy kids, and we're at a small club, so it's not like we're able to select select out the crazies. We've got a couple kids who are just a little bit nuts. Got some nice skills, but they're a little bit nuts. <laughs> I told them, and I told their parents, we're, we're removing our shin guards. Parents looked at me like, okay. And then we had the first day of practice, and even though the parents had agreed, most of the kids showed up with shin guards. I said, kids, look at these two. They're not wearing shin guards. What are we going to do? Talk to them about it. They all took their shin guards off except for one kid. Refused to do it. I, I didn't I didn't force them to, to, take, to take them off. Um, I explained to them how it was going to affect the game. Well, about five minutes later, some kid goes slamming into another kid. You know, full speed as if they're wearing shin guards and, oh, they're on the ground. They're writhing around in pain. Well, we paused. We had a talk. And slowly but surely, things cleaned up. 
and we went an mm-hmm. entire year. And yeah, there were there were a few more bruises than there would have been otherwise, but the game got so much cleaner, less beating on each other, and much more skills. It ends up rewarding the skilled players. The skilled players uh, are able to dribble through kids because they're not being kicked, they're not being hacked constantly. They're, at a certain point, is it is it good to become a, t- a solid tough defender? Absolutely. But at these younger ages, we're trying to teach kids to love the game. They're not wearing shin guards and beating each other to death in the in the in the villas of Argentina or in the favelas of Brazil. Those kids are tough. They're a lot tougher than our kids. But they're not beating the tar out of each other when they're playing soccer. And none of them are wearing shin guards. They're playing a game that is about skill. And it's like when you when you're growing up playing playing football, you're playing touch football with your friends in the street. You don't need to tackle someone to learn the skills of, of a football player, to learn to juke another player, to learn to, to, to make a throw and make a catch. Th- these, are, these are the skills that we need to be teaching. So we pulled it off for a year. Uh, when we went indoors, it became much easier, um, and nobody was getting hurt. All winter long, we were playing barefoot, no shin guards, and it was fantastic. We moved back outside, and the adjustment, suddenly the first couple of weeks, it was brutal. And I almost I – almost, uh, my, uh, I was talking with my assistant coach, and I said, you know, should we go back to the shin guards because kids are getting hurt? And I thought, you know what? I think it's the adjustment from, from playing indoors when everything you did worked to going outdoors where suddenly there are divots and, and, uh, and, and so we were running into each other. By the end of it, by, you know, after a couple of weeks of the, of the season, we kept the shin guards off, and the kids were okay. A, a couple times during the season, I had some parents come to me and say, hey, my kid's shin is, my, is really bruised. Can he wear shin guards today? No problem. So we never force the kids to do it, but um, you know, to me, it's not it's not as important as no grass or you know as playing on hard, fast surfaces. Um, sure. I, I, but uh, but you know, if we're if we're trying to if we're trying to create players that have the same skill level as as Paul Pogba and Mbappe and uh, in, and and Isco in Spain or, or Messi in Argentina. We should be looking at what the kids are doing there and replicating that. And nobody's wearing shin guards, so go figure. I guess that, I guess. Now, did you have that. any case? Yeah, did you have any cases where there were kids? And I think again of my little Messi, um, who would be more timid in those situations, and so maybe less likely to get the ball. Well. My, I have a couple of really, I have this one really small kid, really small. <laughs> he, he just he absolutely ran free and, uh, no, I, I, you know, all different sizes. I've got a couple of really big kids, some really small kids. I mean, it's just your typical U9, U10 age group and, and not at all. The, the field is small enough that we're, that we're playing on most of the time. That uh, you know everyone's going to get touches. Everyone's going to get their touches in, and uh, I simply didn't run into those problems. I mean, there were a lot of problems that you, hmm. thought, that you would think that would, would 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 happen, but again, it's you you when you just let them play under the conditions that they would typically choose to play under if they were just kids in the street. The game teaches itself. I mean, if there's a reason why it became the beautiful game, why it became the world's game, because it's a game that that people just kind of played with and were creative with and and that's what we're missing in this country it's it's been a game that we've practiced from almost from day one in most regions of the country most uh ethnic groups and most classes most economic classes and you know 99 percent in this country have been practicing at being a soccer player for the last 40 years 
We haven't been just playing soccer. Now, near the end of Sheila Soccer, you say that um, the grassroots proposals in this book require nothing more than a bit of humility. That that seems difficult to me just because <laughs> um, because I haven't spent as much time overseas as you have. I've traveled a little bit. I, in fact, I've, <laughs> I did uh, just last Thanksgiving. I uh, hiked up to one of the highest points in Barcelona, and uh-huh. uh, there immediately below me, I mean, uh, was a football court, and I saw some um, – Older guys come out and play. In fact, it looked like the kind of game that I wish I could find, where the guys aren't moving very much. Yeah, <laughs> I keep yeah, hearing yeah. those games just, exist. Just kicking a ball around, right? Yeah. Yeah, I keep hearing those games exist, and I haven't really found them. <laughs> you, know, you know, I I played in our local parents' league at one point, and after five or ten minutes of trying to sprint with you know Mr. Triathlete, I'm just like I'm yeah. done. Take me yeah. out. Um, but. Um, Humility is not something Americans tend to do. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, how do you – in fact, even you know, not to put you on the spot of this, but, but the, the book itself is not humble in places. I mean, it's given yeah. as a guidebook to winning the World Cup. Um, well, so yeah. How, and, how can we reconcile that? Well, you know, it's, it's no well, – we're, we're not proposing any you know, simple quick fix. But we're simply saying, mm-hmm. if we ever want to win the World Cup, we've got to we've got to completely rethink what we're doing because we're just producing a bunch of uh, a bunch of uh, I, uh, not I, I don't know if automatons, but we're just we're just not producing people with real game sense with for the size of, of the country we have and the number of kids playing soccer, it's just not working. So you know, when we mm-hmm. say win the World Cup, it's not like we have some magic formula because our focus is on the grassroots. What happens at the elite levels? I trust that those people know what they're doing, but I think that too many of them don't, do not actually know what's happening with the millions of kids who are signing up at the grassroots and who are leaving before they ever get, get, get a hold of them. They're getting a hold of such a self-selecting group of kids who are either economically able or the, economically able and their parents are willing to make all the sacrifices, do all the driving that's necessary that's such a small little sliver of the kids who are playing soccer, and it is not representative of the talent that's out there. I guarantee you that, having spent many, many years at the grassroots level, there are a lot of really quality kids who are not moving up the system because the, the parents refuse to do it or the parents can't afford to do it, and there's nobody there's, – there's, there's, there, there are no scouts who are actually out there finding the best players. It, the, the clubs are simply advertising how how wonderful they are. But your question is you're, going back to your question. I've gotten I've gotten off, but you're asking um, um, the, humility it requires more than just humility, right? More than just humility. Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. In the book, we you know we kind of take a a kind of sometimes a little bit of a sarcastic attitude because of what we've seen over the years. We've seen that there's mm-hmm. not a lot of humility. First of all, let me say. There are a lot of outstanding people who have dedicated their lives to this, and sometimes it is also their livelihood. And I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, you know, I don't want to say that they shouldn't be making money off the sport and any of that. Um, but I'll also say there are some people out there. I think a lot of people who are running these tournaments who are simply in it for the buck, and they don't care one lick about the development of the players. And there are clubs out there who are like that. But but I think for the most part. A lot of really well-meaning people, um, but 
there's a lot of economic interest in just keeping things the way they are. I'll just leave it at that because I don't want to get into the whole soccer industrial complex. Yes, we have a chapter on that, but that's that's complicated stuff. And you and probably some of your listeners know more about the, the higher level, the upper levels of soccer than I do. I know rec soccer and I know the beginning levels of travel soccer and I know that it's not working there. What I will say though is that I believe that there's there is a way to make money and and, and do things right. Um, what we, the only humility required is to recognize that what we're doing right now isn't working. That despite the, the fantastic training I received from NSA, NSCAA in the NSCAA license courses and the U.S. soccer license courses, uh, coaches course, courses, they were they were teaching me to do things that 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 haven't worked. That, that, they're giving me the best practices within a system that just isn't working. <clears throat> so we simply need to have the humility humility to step back and say our kids at the at the at the basic levels are are not we're not developing soccer players. They're not playing soccer. And what I've found is the the, the typical response to to anything we've written so far is a lot of people saying, "Yeah, but what you what you guys are proposing is not soccer." And I would argue they're just they're begging the question because our question is well, what is soccer? And I think mm-hmm. in this country, we're just so obsessed with this idea that we know what soccer is. And we need to step out of, of, of our little bubble, have the humility to step out of our bubble and see that the kids overseas in these soccer-mad countries that are producing quality are not playing under the conditions that our kids are playing under. They they, they look like there's just – there's almost no no comparison. It just doesn't look like the same doesn't look like the same thing. We're training soccer players. They're playing soccer, and those are and we're training soccer players to play a certain kind of game, as if there's only one way to play soccer, and that's kind of what is played in, in, in on professional fields. Um, so the humility we're not asking for a whole lot. Uh, I, I'm not totally satisfied with that right. answer, but. Uh, but now you're getting the conversation of how to actually how to actually pull this off, and I recognize uh, there's there's quite a system that we're facing, and there's a lot of money involved, and to to uh, have the courage to break out of what is right now paying your mortgage or making your car payment uh, is that that's that's tough stuff. Yeah, and the, and the soccer industrial complex is a uh, is a great phrase, and I, I've I've used it before, seen it a few places. Too. And also, when you yeah. go to an NSCAA, what's now United Soccer Coaches Convention, go to the exhibit hall, you go, my goodness, you're charging this much money uh, for this. But there's a funny thing about humility and about learning from overseas and so forth, um, where you know, U.S. Soccer, the federation, you know, does go out and try to learn, you know, what other countries are doing, but it is mostly at the institutional level. Yeah, it's yeah, not it's really always, the grassroots. Yeah. It's always what are we doing at Bradenton and how does that compare to what they're doing at the at the at the Camp Nou or at the at La Fabrica and at Real Madrid. Yeah. At, at, but again, as I said earlier, we're we're trying to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear and we may be doing everything right in the purse factory. But we're we're not bringing in silk. We're bringing in the sow's ear and trying to run it to our 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 our, our purse factory. We have got 
we're, we're losing our kids at the grassroots level. Our kids are not developing at the grassroots level. Our kids are learning skills, but they're not learning to, they're, but they're not playing the game. And, uh, and, and that's what you, that's what you don't see. And as I say, great people at the top or even you know, the, the, the full-time uh, soccer people I know well are really great people and they're giving, they're, they've given their lives to this thing. But, uh, but, very few of them pay much attention to what's going on at the, at the at the grassroots, and then it's not their number one priority. And when you kind of challenge them on it, they they they, they take issue because this is their this is their their full time job. And who am I, just some college professor who's you know observed a few things? And yeah, I dedicated the last decade plus of my life, you know, once my 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 day job was over, to to coaching kids. But still, who am I to give them advice? And that's where right. the humility comes in because I think that these professional people have got to recognize that there's something they're missing at this at this basic level. And the same drills, kind of dumbed down versions of the drills they're running for their uh, professional or semi-pro or college players, uh, uh, applied to to three through twelve year olds, don't work. If, they, if the three to twelve year olds haven't actually just played the game. Right. Yeah, and there's a contrast that um, I, would, I would draw. I went to a session at the United Soccer Coaches Convention this past uh, – oh, a few months ago, I guess. It was one of the few sessions I went to that was not a presidential candidate forum because I was covering that. But it was uh, someone from UEFA uh, talking about grassroots initiatives uh, in Europe. And it was uh, all about how, okay, we're going to talk with – clubs, and we don't just mean Barcelona or IADS or Bayern Munich, we mean uh, a neighborhood club about, you know, what programs you're doing. Now, contrast that with discussions I've had in the U.S. with people who, when you talk about any of this stuff, they say, well, that's a recreational mindset. You know, that's what comes up again. And what I end up saying back to these people is, look, every single player whether they're going out and playing in their neighborhoods in Spain or Argentina or whether their first experience is being a five-year-old playing for AYSO, every single player starts as a recreational player. It, exactly. And, you are absolutely. and we don't see that here. Yeah. We just don't I mean, see it here. So, so, yeah. Soccer is a game. Games are recreation. It always begins with a recreational mindset. Every kid, Messi yeah. began with a recreational mindset. Pele began with a recreational mindset. Mbappe began with a recreational mindset. It is play. And if our kids don't ever play, then there's going to be no foundation upon which to build. And that's what we see. We see, you know, I read an article years ago, um, and as we we talked earlier, there there are all sorts of people in U.S. soccer who are saying the right thing, but then they never complete the argument. So there's an article called We Want uh, Robinho's Not Robots. Of course, that's when Robinho was the newest revelation at Real Madrid back in 2006. It didn't exactly pan out, but he did have a spectacular debut for Real Madrid. I think they were playing Malaga back in the day. We want Robinho's Not Robots. And he points out, you know, that we're developing robots in this country. Well, 12 years later, 12 years after the article was written, nothing has changed. We still are. We're still producing robots and not Robinho's because you can write all the articles in the world, but unless you acknowledge the system that is designed to to create robots, a system that is designed around winning. Now we're talking about the bigger picture of the soccer industrial complex, a, a system that where the rewards are for winning and not for developing players. Um, and as long as we have that, 
perhaps it's just it's too much to ask people to just change everything overnight. Although I do think some of the conditions we talk about in our book could be changed right now and produce immediate immediate victories. But the overcoaching our kids, we have got to change the reward system. The U, U.S. soccer has got to figure out some way to begin to reward direct rewards to coaches for developing players um, at the at the youngest ages. Direct rewards for developing players and moving them along, moving them along the pipeline, so that so that people can see, and people can brag about. Not just you know you, you have the code the clubs who will brag about the number of players or who are playing Division One or, or who are playing college soccer. Yeah, but that's you know that's 15 years sometimes after they began playing. 15 years later, you put on their on your website. But you know in in Spain, and I know the system is different, but in in Europe, you know. My, my son played with a six-year-old who the next year was, was – he was scouted while he was playing alongside my son, and the kid went to Real Madrid's academy the next year. So, you know, the local club that my son played with was able to say, hey, Benjamin is at Real Madrid this year. Um, I know our system mm-hmm. is different, but you've got to create – somehow we've got to create incentives, some way of creating immediate rewards for, for coaches who develop players and ways of making clear when you've got coaches who are not developing players. We've got to be able to see that because that your average American parent cannot see that, and even the clubs themselves aren't interested in seeing it. I mean, I can name you coaches who know how to win games, but they don't develop their players. Their players stagnate. They, their, their players are booting long, hard shots and chasing after balls from the time they're six years old to the time they're 12, 13, and 14. And by the time they're 12, 13, and 14, they have no skills. They can still boot a ball really hard. You know, and maybe that worked for the American system 20 years ago, but those 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 kids aren't developing. But the coaches are continuing to be rewarded because the coaches win. You can win through the youth ranks by booting the ball hard and chasing hard and being intense. Those those kinds of things. And now we're now we're talking really big. But U.S. soccer has got to figure out some way to disincentivize that kind of behavior and to reward the coaches who are developing talent. Okay, so I'm going to combine the two open-ended questions that I had to close with. Um, okay. And they were putting you putting you in charge at a couple of different points um, in the U.S. soccer community. The, the first one I had in mind was kind of a mid-sized club, let's say at a typical age group, you know, U12, U14. They have maybe four travel teams and 12, 16 recreational teams. The other one was let's say you're in charge of – a regional pyramid, um, the one that I know in, in my area is EDP, which has, uh, you know, its top division, you know, the, those teams are can compete for national titles, and then it goes down to lower divisions to where it might be the lower, uh, you know, the C teams of the big clubs and the A teams of the smaller clubs. So if you're, you could be in charge of in both of those capacities, um, what would you want to accomplish? Um, this is a tough question because again what we're what we're arguing runs so counter to so many of the things that almost any club uh in this day and age in this country, even at the lower levels uh needs to do to to win the respect of its parents. But if I could be in charge of the region I just came from <laughs> <laughs> where the region's large enough that uh that people would have to travel way out of their way to 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 escape the tyranny of Nathan Richardson. 
<laughs> what, I would, what I would implement is from the very beginning, our, our youngest kids are no longer going to be um, uh, showing up for the first day of soccer uh, out at the grassy at the grassy field that we've that we've invested so much money in, they're going to be showing up uh, right after school behind on the blacktop behind their local elementary school, and we're going to run um, and they're going to just play soccer, small sided games. Um, they're going to meet, you know, if we, if we practice twice a week, if we practice once a week. They're going to gather and they're going to play a game. And there's going to be some somebody out there, an older kid or a, or or an adult with some skills, who's going to get out there and play with them. Um, and they're just going to play soccer and we're going to continue to do that. So it's going to be small sided stuff. Just play, 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 play. When something goes wrong, you pause, you point something out and you move on on Saturday mornings. We're going to gather. We're not going to, uh, uh there's no, there aren't going to be uniforms. We're going to put a penny on them. Um, we're not going to require anything other than a pair of tennis shoes and, uh, we're not going to have a referee. Uh, we're not going to have necessarily coaches. We're going to simply have a facilitator out there, and the kids are going to play. And that's what we're going to do for um, at least through, let's say, age uh, age age 10. I would prefer age 12. As they get older, they, the, the, the the size of the field we play on will be, uh, get a little bit larger. We're never going to play more than uh, maybe uh, 66 or 77 at most. At a certain point, you, you, you shove in the goalies, but we're going to keep the uniforms off the kids. We're going to uh, keep the referees out of things. And uh, what you're going to discover is you're going to discover a bunch of kids just playing a game, having a good time. People aren't going to be worrying about keeping scores. You're going to have fewer injuries. And uh, and by age 12, we're going to have a bunch of kids with some crazy foot skills. And uh, and then, they'll, then, the, then I don't know, I, as I say, this is completely – off the wall, but uh, but I think that's what uh, if you if you want to develop uh, talent, that's what you're going to do. Um, if, if if we're not going to go that off the wall, um, I'm going to uh, we're not going to travel outside of our immediate region. Nobody's going to ever travel further than an hour away um, for hmm. any kind of game. But but through through age ten, you're not going to leave your city. There's no reason to leave your city, even for the best kids. If it's a small compact game. If that kid's too good to play with the younger kids, he'll go play with the older kids, or she'll go play with the older kids. And they're not going to get hurt because we're not going to be playing with shin guards. We're going to be playing on blacktop. It's going to be a skills game. It's not going to be a physical game. And we, we don't have referees out there. We don't have coaches. We don't have we don't have uniforms. And so the the love the, the the intensity level, the pressure to to win is going to drop. It's it's going to be something you're not going to recognize without all the trappings of an official game. The parents are, are going to be much more chill. The grandparents much more chill. Everyone's going to be sitting there enjoying the game. So I've seen it happen. Um, uh, I lost my train of thought here, but um, oh, we're not going. Yeah, even maybe age 12 to 14, maybe you can travel up to an hour away. We're not going to do tournaments. We're not going to do tournaments. If we're going to do a tournament, it's going to, again, be just a local thing in the city. Um, we might, uh, and, and we're not going to be wearing uniforms, just throwing on a penny, getting, get rid of the coaches. Um, we've got facilitators. Uh, tournaments, I think, are the worst thing. And, and, and you talk to, again, in, in the coaching clinics and, and in the articles you read, you have people acknowledging what a mess tournaments are, but they just keep happening mm -hmm. for, for purely economic reasons. And, and by the way, they're now starting to take over in Spain and Italy, the, 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 again, the two areas that I 
that we know from the book, um, the money mm-hmm. is entering into those program in, into those countries now. Uh, tournaments used to be a, an optional opportunity for kids who weren't going on uh, winter break or going on the uh, very sacred uh, Holy Week in Spain. There would be maybe a Holy Week tournament for the kids who are sticking around. Uh, you you might bring in ringers from other clubs. That's the only time you have tournaments. You, tournaments are not part of a season. The season is you play every Saturday for nine months, except for these breaks, and then you have the optional tournament. Get rid of all the tournaments. Get rid of the travel. Um, right now, we talk about in the book, we've got uh, three elite uh, boys programs in Northwest Ohio. Three elite boys programs. I know the kids who play on the U14 teams for all three of those programs. They all play in, in separate leagues. One travels up into Michigan, one travels over into Pennsylvania and even New York, east of Cleveland, and then the other plays in all of northern Ohio. They never play each other. Mm-hmm. Why is that? They would all be able to compete with each other. Um, we played in a local state cup. Every team we played played in a different in a different league. We had great competition with them, and they're all local teams. Uh, not all of them exactly Northwest Ohio, but they're all fairly local teams. We could be having great competition, never traveling. This is U14s, never traveling more than a couple hours away. You, you, all you need is five teams, uh, and you play each, each other two or three times. You'd get great competition. But instead, one of these clubs is traveling to from 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 Northern Ohio. They're traveling to Virginia, to Tennessee, to Indiana, to New York, week after week. They played our team, which just stays in Northern Ohio. And it was, it was the two, you know, the, the game ended 2-1. It was a fantastic competition. Why in the world, if I were in charge, we would not be traveling. We would not be traveling. There was some, there was some coach that you, that you quoted in your blog recently where he said, you know, anybody who proposes a national championship for kids, you know, ought to be shot <laughs> or something. You know? And I think he's Yeah, it's old right. fertile, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is, it's insane if you think about it. Why in the world? Why in the world are kids in any sport competing in national championships at age 12 or 13 or even 14? I don't care about your national skills until your college age. Who cares? We're all developing. We're all still figuring things out. Um, yeah, if, if I were the czar of, of, of U.S. soccer, you play in your region. There's plenty of talent out there. But uh, I, I do suspect that there are some people who are interested in leaving the competition behind. They don't want to face the local competition. They want to create elite conditions so that their kid can be one of those elite. You know, to be a, we'd rather be a big fish in a small pond and eventually flame out. But to have the bragging rights while we're raising our kid is more important than producing true overall excellence. And I, I, I'm not saying anything new there. I mean, we we know that. That's just... That, that's the case not just in soccer, but, you know, sports all around. We'd rather keep the kids right. out than bring the kids in. But I, I, so we would just – we would simply say you're not going to travel. You're, we don't travel. We keep it local, lots of games on the local level and small-sided and playing on the blacktop behind the school. I'll just point out that tennis at the highest level is also played on grass. But as you said about the, you know, replicating the, the conditions at the Camp Nou, for example, at Barcelona's Camp Nou, you can't replicate, replicate the conditions at Wimbledon. But tennis people have understood this from the beginning. Nobody tries to create a grass court at their local high school or at the local parks and rec facility. We play, we, we create a hard surface that can replicate the kind of grass they play on at Wimbledon 
or the kind of clay they play on it at the, at the French Open. We don't, we don't try to teach tennis on grass. Why in the world right. are we trying to teach soccer on grass? It's not, it's not the beautiful game. It may be the game they invented in England back in the 19th century, but it's not the beautiful game that was reinvented in the ports of Buenos Aires and Montevideo and, and Rio. Okay, that's, that's a, it, that is a game played on hard surfaces with a, with a ball moving 100 miles an hour and requiring tremendous foot skills to make it happen. And you're not beating people to death to try to get that ball or booting the ball as hard as you can. Uh, to try to score as fast as you can. So, and, 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 you know, as long as we continue to, to think we're playing 19th century soccer and, uh, and, and to ignore the conditions that create the beautiful game, we will continue to, to produce 19th century quality soccer players in this country and not create beautiful soccer players. But it's okay if we leave our shoes on? You can leave, yeah, you can leave your shoes on. Uh, okay. yeah, you know, we, we, we call it shoeless simply to acknowledge, to, to, to make an extreme point, but also because we ended up doing that with our kids this last winter and they had the time of their lives. Um, controlling that ball, what you, of course, you know, you don't have to teach kids to play futsal when they're playing barefoot. They immediately pick it up. They realize controlling the ball with that, with the sole of your foot. They, they, they learn those skills almost, almost, you, you might point it out to a few of them, but if you have someone out there playing with them, they pick it up. Uh, so, you know, is there, are there benefits from going shoeless? You know, uh, watch the movie Pelala, for example. I think there are definitely benefits. Mm-hmm. But there are some things that are more important. Some things more important than other things. Um, and none of this is rocket science. None of it costs any money. You can still make your money. I think there are ways within the system that the people who have dedicated their lives and whose livelihood depend on this can continue to make their money. But they just need to all step back and agree that uh, that they can make their money a different way. So, you know, we're not trying to take the, so, take, take the, take the money out of, anybody's, out of anybody's wallet. We're simply saying, you know, rethink this thing. You, otherwise, you're never going to produce what you, what you think you want to produce. And the numbers are dwindling now. And everyone, everyone knows that. We've, you know, that, that, uh, that uh, truth has finally been revealed. And, and uh, that should um, create some, uh, you know, give people some pause. So, right. so I'll plug that uh, one of my early podcasts was with my fellow Dukey Gwendolyn Ottsenham, who uh, was one of the makers of Pilata. Um, oh, uh, yeah. She and her then, yeah, she and her then boy, yeah, she and her then boyfriend, now husband. And um, can you tell people uh, the full book title again? And it's available everywhere. Is it's it in avail- bookstores or is it pretty much No, just, it's available it's, on, on Amazon in, in, in right. uh, paperback or uh, Kindle edition. Kindle edition we put really inexpensive, about as inexpensive as Amazon will let us put it. So this isn't, a, this isn't about mm-hmm. making money. This is about people just trying to read outside the box. All we want people to do is read outside the box and think, why not? Can't, why, why couldn't we do this? And especially parents, to go to their local coaches and local people and say, why aren't we doing this? Uh, the book is Shula Soccer, Fixing the System and Winning the World Cup. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. All right. Well, thanks for, thanks for having me, and hopefully it makes some impact. I'm really excited to see, uh, you know, you've talked about your interest in really talking about youth soccer this, this, uh, in, the, in the coming months, and I think it's a conversation that needs to be continued. So uh, I wish you the best with that. and. Uh, Happy to 
continue to contribute in, in any way we can we can do so. So good luck. With all right. That. We'll all we'll all keep talking. <laughs> all right. And and hopefully doing stuff. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye. Yes. Definitely. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. You know, the funny thing about all this is that there were so many questions that I didn't get to. I actually intended to talk a bit about parenting at large in this interview because it gets into the the issue of free range versus helicopter parenting. And those are, if you haven't heard those terms before, they're fairly descriptive. Uh, Helicopter, you can imagine it's a parent who's always hovering around and wants to be sure everything goes well. Uh, Related to the snowplow parent, again, another nice descriptive term who basically tries to remove any obstacles that would make a child face adversity. And there's a lot of literature to suggest that that is a bad idea. Helicopter parenting is something that I think you try to avoid, but at some some places you just can't. There are some times when you have to step in and teach. And then free-range parenting is what it says. And uh, it's a bit endangered right now, so people tend to be a bit defensive about it because we're in an era where you can't send your 11-year-old down to the park without people uh, saying you're a bad parent. And, of course, if you're my age, you remember going everywhere on your own when you're 8 years old. So that's something that's changed a bit. Free-range parenting advocates really want to bring that back. And, of course, the Shoeless Soccer book is, as you can guess, more of a a free-range advocate. Um, Ideally, of course kids would be going off and playing on their own. Then this book kind of makes peace with the fact that that's not going to happen very often, but suggests, well, then let's facilitate. So if you enjoyed the interview, I think you will enjoy the book. Uh, it is, uh, there, there are some editing issues that you may have noticed in my, uh, in my review of the book. Um, but I think those are minor, easily put aside and then I think the points of the book uh, are interesting. I wouldn't say I agree with them 100%. I wouldn't expect uh, every reader to agree with them 100%. I think in some cases there's a bit of hyperbole to try to make a point with perhaps an extreme example. But again, I think the points are worth considering. Some of them have been brought up many times uh, in the conversation. Some of them deserve reinforcement. Some of them I thought were fairly unique and certainly worth worth a read. So we'll be back next week, uh, continuing the series of people with whom I do not agree 100% might be about promotion relegation. We'll see. If you haven't read my promotion relegation page yet, please do. Just go to Ranting Soccer Dad and you'll see it across the top menu. Uh, It's about 5,000 words, and I figure that's better than arguing about it 280 characters at a time on Twitter, which I'm basically done with. I'll I'll do a couple of tweets just to explain something here and there, but I'm not getting in these long uh, drag-out arguments that only two people are reading. Um, You can understand why, as I get close to age 50, my priorities change a little bit, and arguing the same argument over and over that I've been having since my early 30s is not among my highest priorities. So if you're interested in the argument, please do read that. And uh, please do listen next week. It should be an interesting conversation. Uh, Until then, rant on. Thanks for listening. 
you subscribe to the Ranting Soccer Dad podcast using whatever podcatcher you use to find us in the first place. Could be iTunes, could be Stitcher, or maybe you came in through the blog, which is rantingsoccerdad.com, where you will find all the past podcasts, along with news and analysis from the world of youth soccer and beyond. And yes, you will find the occasional rant about things. You'll also see a link to the Patreon page to support the podcast and blog and all other Ranting Soccer Dad activities. And you'll see merchandise, including the Travel Sucker t-shirt. Until next time, rant on!